370, Chapter 5. Book talk begins pretty much immediately. Welcome to Craftlid, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 370. Happy doubt? This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Survival Organs. Handmade organs to throw, love, or cuddle at Etsy. And March Hare Yarns. Hand-dyed yarns just for you. You can visit the March Hare at Etsy. And Subbable, the site where you can go to support your favorite content creators. Visit subbable.com slash craftlit and sign up for perks and fun. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at knitcircus.com. Links to all of our sponsors can be found in the show notes at craftlit.com. Remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go have a look. Well, hello. I hope you have survived the holiday season and are having a lovely time. I hope family has not been annoying. I hope friends have been supportive. I hope presents have been what you wanted. And I hope the food has not made any of us gain any extra pounds. That is my holiday wish for all of us. If there is a Christmas miracle, it will be that I don't gain weight. There. Well, today's chapter is sure to be interesting because Terry is still Terry. Terry, (laughs) Terry, in this chapter, Terry says some things that were laugh out loud funny, but also his dark side is showing. It's kind of like, um, your slip is showing. It's your slip ups are showing. So Terry's, Terry's going to be an interesting one to watch. He also has a comment at one point where he calls the women Lady Burbanks, and I swear to you, I have looked everywhere I can to find out what he means. If you have ever heard this phrase or the word Burbank be used to describe something other than a town in California, Illinois, Ohio, Washington, or Utah, please let me know. 206-350-1642. Now, those of you who have been with us for a while, or listened to Gulliver's Travels, you may recognize some of what Charlotte Perkins Gilman is doing in here. And this is where the satiric nature of her land comes into play. And I have to tell you how incredibly gratified I am to have seen some comments around recently, both on on Twitter and elsewhere on the web, with people saying, you know, I really, I'm not into feminist literature, but Heather, if you chose this, there's got to be a reason for it, and so I'm going to trust you. Or people have said, you know, I read this in college, and I really didn't get it or like it, and I'm thinking, well, maybe now, maybe now I'll, I'll like it more. And I'm starting to get the emails saying, mm-hmm, yeah, I didn't get any of the humor, or really understand where this took place in time and history. It's a lot easier to understand if you think about this being 1915, right at the beginning of World War II, a very different time in our societies, our cultures. But I brought up Gulliver's Travels because Gilman is absolutely using the same technique that Jonathan Swift did for parts of Gulliver's Travels, where the people from the other countries or the 
or the creatures from another country uh, ask him questions about his homeland. And the questions that they asked are always rigged to expose something embarrassing or horrifying or just kind of distressing and sad about, in Gulliver's case, England, and in Herland's case, about America. And that will continue for pretty much the rest of the book. So that is that is something to keep your eyes open for. Also, in case you have never seen it or don't remember, there will be a reference to Titus Andronicus. I think all you really need to know is that it is a crazy tit-for-tat power play between Titus and Tamora and Saturninus. And these are all players in a very old, very bloody Roman story thing. And it is it is really, really bloody. And I believe it's the tit-for-tat nature of you killed my son, so I'm going to kill your son, that kind of thing. Lovely, charming story. I'm sure you'll all want to watch it for Valentine's Day. <laughs> I actually did see it at the Royal Shakespeare Company in uh, in Stratford, and it was excellent. I got to see the Deborah Warner version, which was just marvelous. Almost no blood, but lots of mud, and people kept thinking that the mud was blood and passing out, which was kind of cool. So that was fun. And I think I think that's about it. We have more stuff to talk about afterwards and some kind of disturbing stuff to talk about afterwards. I told you there was some in here. It's going to start to show its ugly face in a moment. So uh, not not entirely this chapter, but, but soon you're going to get the first hint of it today. So here we go with Chapter 5 of Herland, read by Charles Hutchinson. Chapter 5. A Unique History It is no use for me to try to piece out this account with adventures. If the people who read it are not interested in these amazing women and their history, they will not be interested at all. As for us, three young men in a whole land full of women, what could we do? We did get away, as described, and were peacefully brought back again without, as Terry complained, even the satisfaction of hitting anybody. There were no adventures because there was nothing to fight. There were no wild beasts in the country and very few tame ones. Of these, I might as well stop to describe the one common pet of the country. Cats, of course, but such cats. What do you suppose these Lady Burbanks had done with their cats? By the most prolonged and careful selection and exclusion, they had developed a race of cats that did not sing. That's a fact. The most those poor dumb brutes could do was to make a kind of squeak when they were hungry or wanted the door open, and of course to purr, and make the various mother noises to their kittens. Moreover, they had ceased to kill birds. They were rigorously bred to destroy mice and moles and all such enemies of the food supply, but the birds were numerous and safe. While we were discussing birds, Terry asked them if they used feathers for their hats, and they seemed amused at the idea. He made a few sketches of our women's hats and plumes and quills and those various tickling things that stick out so far, and they were eagerly interested as at everything about our women. As for them, they said they only wore hats for shade when working in the sun, 
And those were big, light straw hats, something like those used in China and Japan. In cold weather, they wore caps or hoods. But for decorative purposes, don't you think they would be becoming? Pursued Terry, making as pretty a picture as he could of a lady with a plumed hat. They by no means agreed to that, asking quite simply if the men wore the same kind. We hastened to assure her that they did not, drew for them our kind of headgear. And do no men wear feathers in their hats? Only Indian, Jeff explained. Savages, you know. And he sketched a war bonnet to show them. And soldiers, I added, drawing a military hat with plumes. They never expressed horror or disapproval, nor indeed much surprise, just a keen interest. And the notes they made, miles of them. But to return to our pussycats, we were a good deal impressed by this achievement in breeding. And when they questioned us, I can tell you we were well pumped for information. We told of what had been done for dogs and horses and cattle, but that there was no effort applied to cats except for show purposes. I wish I could represent the kind, quiet, steady, ingenious way they questioned us. It was not just curiosity. They weren't a bit more curious about us than we were about them, if as much. But they were bent on understanding our kind of civilization, and their lines of interrogation would gradually surround us and drive us in till we found ourselves up against some admissions we did not want to make. Are all of these breeds of dogs you have made useful? They asked. Oh, useful. Why, the hunting dogs and shop dogs are useful. And sled dogs, of course. And ratters, I suppose. But we don't keep dogs for their usefulness. The dog is the friend of man, we say. We love them. That they understood. We love our cats that way. They surely are our friends and helpers, too. You can see how intelligent and affectionate they are. It was a fact. I'd never seen such cats except in a few rare instances. Big, handsome, silky things, friendly with everyone and devotedly attached to their special owners. You must have a heartbreaking time drowning kittens, we suggested. But they said, oh no, you see we care for them as you do for your valuable cattle. The fathers are few compared to the mothers, just a few very fine ones in each town. But they live quite happily in walled gardens and the houses of their friends. But they only have a mating season once a year. Rather hard on Thomas, isn't it? suggested Terry. Oh no, truly. You see, it is many centuries that we have been breeding the kind of cats we wanted. They are healthy and happy and friendly, as you see. How do you manage with your dogs? Do you keep them in pairs or segregate the fathers or what? Then we explained that, well, that it wasn't a question of fathers exactly. That nobody wanted a, a mother dog. That, well, that practically all our dogs were males. There were only a very small percentage of females allowed to live. Then Zava, observing Terry with her grave, sweet smile, quoted back at him, Rather hard on Thomas, isn't it? Do they enjoy it, living without mates? 
Are your dogs as uniformly healthy and sweet-tempered as our cats? Jeff laughed, eyeing Terry mischievously. As a matter of fact, we began to feel Jeff something of a traitor. He so often flopped over and took their side of things. Also, his medical knowledge gave him a different point of view of somehow. I'm sorry to admit, he told him, that the dog with us is the most diseased of any animal next to man. And as to temper, there are always some dogs who bite people, especially children. That was pure malice. You see, children were the, the raison d'etre in this country. All of our interlocutors sat up straight at once. They were still gentle, still restrained, but there was a note of deep amazement in their voices. Do we understand that you keep an animal, an unmated male animal, that bites children? About how many are there of them, please? Thousands, you know, in a large city, said Jeff, and nearly every family has one in the country. Terry broke in at this. You must not imagine they are all dangerous. It's not one in a hundred that ever bites anybody. Why, they are the best friends of the children. A boy doesn't have half a chance that hasn't a dog to play with. And the girls, asked Samel. Oh, the girls, why, they like them too, he said. But his voice flatted a little. They always noticed little things like that, we found later. Little by little, they wrung from us the fact that the friend of man in the city was a prisoner, was taken out for his meager exercise on a leash, was liable not only to many diseases, but to the one destroying horror of rabies. And in many cases, for the safety of the citizens, had to be muzzled. Jeff maliciously added vivid instances he had known or read of injury and death from mad dogs. They did not scold or fuss about it, calm as judges those women were, but they made notes. Moedine read them to us. Please tell me if I have the facts correct, she asked. In your country and in others too? Yes, we admitted, in most civilized countries. In most civilized country, a kind of animal is kept which is no longer useful? They are a protection, Terry insisted. They bark if burglars try to get in. And she made notes of burglars and went on, Because of the love which people bear to this animal? Zava interrupted here. Is the the men or the women who love these animals so much? Both, insisted Terry. Equally, she inquired, and just said, Nonsense, Terry. You know men like dogs better than women do, as a whole. Because they love it so much, especially men, this animal is kept shut up or, or chained? Why? suddenly asked Somel. We keep our father cat shut up, because we do not want too much fathering. But they are not chained, and they have large grounds to run in. A valuable dog would be stolen if he were let loose, I said. We put collars on them with the owner's name in case they do stray. Besides, they get into fights. A valuable dog might easily be killed by a bigger one. 
I see, she said. They fight when they meet. Is, is that common? We admitted that it was. They are kept shut up or chained, she paused again and asked, Is not a dog fond of running? Are they not built for speed? That we admitted, too, and Jeff, still malicious, enlightened them further. I've always thought it was a pathetic sight, both ways, to see a man or woman taking a dog to walk at the end of a string. Have, have you bred them to be as neat in their habits as cats are? Was the next question. And when Jeff told them of the effect of dogs on sidewalk merchandise and the streets generally, they found it hard to believe. You see, their country was as neat as a Dutch kitchen and as to sanitation, but I might as well start in now with as much as I can remember of the history of this amazing country before further descriptions. And I'll summarize here a bit as to our opportunities for learning it. I will not try to repeat the careful, detailed account I lost. I'll just say that we were kept in that fortress a good six months, all told. And after that, three in a pleasant enough city where, to Terry's infinite disgust, there were only colonels and little children. No young women, whatever. Then we were under surveillance for three more always with a tutor or a guard or both. But those months were pleasant because we were really getting acquainted with the girls. That was a chapter, or will be. I will try to do justice to it. We learned their language pretty thoroughly, had to, and they learned ours much more quickly and used it to hasten our own studies. Jeff, who was never without reading matter of some sort, had two little books with him, a novel and a little anthology of verse. And I had one of those pocket encyclopedias, a fat little thing bursting with facts. These were used in our education, and theirs. Then, as soon as we were up to it, they furnished us with plenty of their own books, and I went in for the history part. I wanted to understand the genesis of this miracle of theirs. And this is what happened, according to their records. As to geography, about the time of the Christian era, this land had a free passage to the sea. I'm not saying where, for good reason. But there was a fairly easy pass through that wall of mountains behind us. And there is no doubt, in my mind, that these people were of Aryan stock and were once in contact with the best civilization of the old world. They were white, but somewhat darker than our northern races because of their constant exposure to sun and air. The country was far larger then, including much land beyond the pass and a strip of coast. They had ships, commerce, an army, a king, for at that time they were what they so calmly called us, a bisexual race. What happened to them first was merely a succession of historic misfortunes such as have befallen other nations often enough. They were decimated by war, driven up from their coastline till finally the reduced population, with many of the men killed in battle, occupied this hinterland and defended it for years in the mountain passes. When it was open to any possible attack from below, they strengthened the natural defenses so that it became unscalably secure as we found it. They were a polygamous people, and a slave-holding people 
like all of their time. And during the generation or two of the struggle to defend their mountain home, they built the fortresses, such as the one we were held in, and other of their oldest buildings, some still in use. Nothing but earthquakes could destroy such architecture. Huge solid blocks holding by their own weight. They must have had efficient workmen and enough of them in those days. They made a brave fight for their existence, but no nation can stand up against what the steamship companies call an act of God. While the whole fighting force was doing its best to defend their mountain pathway, there occurred a volcanic outburst with some local tremors, and the result was the complete filling up of the pass, their only outlet. Instead of a passage, a new ridge sheer and high stood between them and the sea. They were walled in, and beneath that wall lay their whole little army. Very few men were left alive save the slaves. And these now seized their opportunity, rose in revolt, killed their remaining masters, even to the youngest boy, killed the old women too, and the mothers, intending to take possession of the country with the remaining young women and girls. But this succession of misfortunes was too much for those infuriated virgins. There were many of them, and but few of these would-be masters. So the young women, instead of submitting, rose in sheer desperation and slew their brutal conquerors. This sounds like Titus Andronicus, I know, but that is their account. I suppose they were about crazy. Can you blame them? There was literally no one left on this beautiful high garden land but a bunch of hysterical girls and some older slave women. That was about 2,000 years ago. At first, there was a period of sheer despair. The mountains towered between them and their old enemies, but also between them and escape. There was no way up or down or out. They simply had to stay there. Some were for suicide, but not the majority. They must have been a plucky lot as a whole, and they decided to live, as long as they did live. Of course, they had hope, as youth must, that something would happen to change their fate. So they set to work to bury the dead, to plow and sow, to care for one another. Speaking of burying the dead, I will set down while I think of it, that they had adopted cremation in about the 13th century for the same reason they had left off raising cattle. They could not spare the room. They were much surprised to learn that we were still burying, asked our reasons for it, and were dissatisfied with what we gave. We told them of the belief in the resurrection of the body, and they asked if our God was not as well able to resurrect from ashes as from long corruption. We told them of how people thought it repugnant to have their loved ones burn, and they asked if it was less repugnant to have them decay. They were inconveniently reasonable, those women. Well, that original bunch of girls set to work to clean up the place and make their living as best they could. Some of the remaining slave women rendered invaluable service, teaching such trades as they knew. They had such records as were then kept, all the tools and implements of the time, and a most fertile land to work in. There were a handful of the younger matrons who had escaped slaughter, and a few babies were born after the cataclysm, but only two boys, and they both died. 
For five or ten years, they worked together, growing stronger and wiser and more and more mutually attached. And then the miracle happened. One of these young women bore a child. Of course, they all thought there must be a man somewhere, but none was found. Then they decided it must be a direct gift from the gods and placed the proud mother in the temple of Maya, their goddess of motherhood, under strict watch. And there, as years passed, this wonder woman bore child after child, five of them, all girls. I did my best, keenly interested as I have always been in sociology and social psychology, to reconstruct in my mind the real position of these ancient women. There were some five or six hundred of them, and they were harem-bred. Yet, for the few preceding generations, they had been reared in the atmosphere of such heroic struggle that the stock must have been toughened somewhat. Left alone in that terrific orphanhood, they had clung together, supporting one another and their little sisters, and developing unknown powers in the stress of a new necessity. To this pain-hardened and work-strengthened group, who had lost not only the love and care of parents, but the hope of ever having children of their own, there now dawned the new hope. Here at last was motherhood, and though it was not for all of them personally, it might, if the power was inherited, found a new race. It may be imagined how those five daughters of Maya, children of the temple, mothers of the future. They had all the titles that love and hope and reverence could give, were reared. The whole little nation of women surrounded them with loving service and waited, between a boundless hope and an equally boundless despair, to see if they, too, would be mothers. And they were. As fast as they reached the age of 25, they began bearing. Each of them, like her mother, bore five daughters. Presently, there were 25 new women, mothers in their own right, and the whole spirit of the country changed from mourning and mere courageous resignation to proud joy. The older women, those who remembered men, died off. The youngest of all the first lot died, too, after a while, and by that time, there were left 155 parthenogenetic women, founding a new race. They inherited all that the devoted care of that declining band of original ones could leave them. Their little country was quite safe. Their farms and gardens were all in full production. Such industries as they had were in careful order. The records of their past were all preserved, and for years the older women had spent their time in the best teaching they were capable of that they might leave to the little group of sisters and mothers all they possessed of skill and knowledge. There you have the start of her land, one family, all descended from one mother. She lived to be a hundred years old, lived to see her hundred and twenty-five great-granddaughters born, lived as queen-priestess-mother of them all, and died with a nobler pride and a fuller joy than perhaps any human soul has ever known. She alone had founded a new race. The first five daughters had grown up in an atmosphere of holy calm, of awed, watchful waiting, of breathless prayer. To them, the longed-for motherhood was not only a personal joy, but a nation's hope. 
There are 25 daughters in turn with a stronger hope, a richer, wider outlook, with the devoted love and care of all the surviving population, grew up as a holy sisterhood, their whole ardent youth looking forward to their great office. And at last, they were left alone. The white-haired first mother was gone. And this was one family, five sisters, 25 first cousins, and 125 second cousins began a new race. Here you have human beings, unquestionably, but what we were slow in understanding was how these ultra-women, inheriting only from women, had eliminated not only certain masculine characteristics, which of course we did not look for, but so much of what we had always thought essentially feminine. The tradition of men as guardians and protectors had quite died out. These stalwart virgins had no men to fear and therefore no need of protection. As to wild beasts, there were none in their sheltered land. The power of mother love, that maternal instinct we so highly laud, was theirs, of course, raised to its highest power. And a sister love, which even while recognizing the actual relationship, we found it hard to credit. Terry, incredulous, even contemptuous, when we were alone, refused to believe the story. A lot of traditions as old as Herodotus, and about as trustworthy, he said. It's likely women, just a pack of women, would have hung together like that. We all know women can't organize, that they scrap like anything, are frightfully jealous. But these new ladies didn't have anyone to be jealous of, remember? Drawled Jeff. That's a likely story, sneered Terry. Why don't you invent a likelier one, I asked him. Here are the women, nothing but women, and you yourself admit there's no trace of a man in the country. This was after we had been about a good deal. I'll admit that, he growled, and it's a big miss, too. There's not only no fun without them, no real sport, no competition, but these women aren't womanly. You know, they aren't. That kind of talk always set Jeff going, and I gradually grew to side with him. Then you don't call a breed of women whose one concern is motherhood womanly, he asked. Indeed, I don't, snapped Terry. What does a man care for motherhood when he hasn't a ghost of a chance at fatherhood? And besides, where is the good of talking sentiment when we are just men together? What a man wants of a woman is a good deal more than all this motherhood. We were as patient as possible with Terry. He had lived about nine months among the colonels when he made that outburst. And with no chance at any more strenuous excitement than our gymnastics gave us, save for our escape fiasco. I don't suppose Terry had ever lived so long with neither love, combat, nor danger to employ his superabundant energies, and he was irritable. Neither Jeff nor I found it so wearing. I was so much interested intellectually that our confinement did not wear on me. And as for Jeff, bless his heart, he enjoyed the society of that tutor of his almost as much as if she had been a girl. I don't know, but more. These women, whose essential distinction of motherhood was the dominant note of their whole culture, were strikingly deficient in what we call femininity. This led me very promptly to the conviction that those 
feminine charms we are so fond of are not feminine at all, but mere reflected masculinity, developed to please us because they had to please us, and in no way essential to the real fulfillment of their great process. But Terry came to no such conclusions. Just you wait till I get out. Then we both cautioned him. Look here, Terry, my boy. You be careful. They've been mighty good to us. But do you remember the anesthesia? If you do any mischief in this virgin land, beware of the vengeance of the maiden ants. Come, be a man. It won't be forever. To return to the history. They began at once to plan and built for their children all the strength and intelligence of the whole of them devoted to that one thing. Each girl, of course, was reared in full knowledge of her crowning office, and they had, even then, very high ideas of the molding powers of the mother, as well as those of education. Such high ideals as they had. Beauty, health, strength, intellect, goodness. For those they prayed and worked. They had no enemies. They themselves were all sisters and friends. The land was fair before them, and a great future began to form itself in their minds. The religion they had to begin with was much like that of old Greece, a number of gods and goddesses. But they lost all interest in deities of war and plunder, and gradually centered on their mother goddess altogether. Then, as they grew more intelligent, this had turned into a sort of maternal pantheism. Here was Mother Earth, bearing fruit. All that they ate was fruit of motherhood, from seed or egg of their product. By motherhood they were born, and by motherhood they lived. Life was to them just the long cycle of motherhood. But very early they recognized the need of improvement as well as of mere repetition, and devoted their combined intelligence to that problem. How to make the best kind of people... First, this was merely the hope of bearing better ones. And then they recognized that however the children differed at birth, the real growth lay later through education. Then things began to hum. As I learned more and more to appreciate what these women had accomplished, the less proud I was of what we, with all our manhood, had done. You see, they had no wars. They had no kings, and no priests, and no aristocracies. They were sisters, and as they grew, they grew together. Not by competition, but by united action. We tried to put in a good word for competition, and they were keenly interested. Indeed, we soon found, from their earnest questions of us, that they were prepared to believe our world must be better than theirs. They were not sure. They wanted to know but there was no such arrogance about them as might have been expected. We rather spread ourselves, telling of the advantages of competition, how it developed fine qualities, that without it there would be no stimulus to industry. Terry was very strong on that point. No stimulus to industry, they repeated, with that puzzled look we had learned to know so well. Stimulus to industry? But don't you like to work? No man would work unless he had to, Terry declared. Oh, no man. You mean that is one of your sex distinctions? 
No, indeed, he said hastily. No one, I mean man or woman, would work without incentive. Competition is the, the motor power, you see. It is not with us, they explained gently. So it is hard for us to understand. Do you mean, for instance, that with you no mother would work for her children without the stimulus of competition? No, he admitted that he did not mean that. Mothers, he supposed, would of course work for their children in the home. But the world's work was different. That had to be done by men and required the competitive element. All our teachers were eagerly interested. We want so much to know. You have the whole world to tell us, and we have only our little land. And there are two of you, the two sexes, to love and help one another. It must be a rich and wonderful world. Tell us, what is the work of the world that men do, which we have not here? Oh, everything, Terry said grandly. The men do everything with us. He squared his broad shoulders and lifted his chest. We do not allow our women to work. Women are loved, idolized, honored, kept in the home to care for their children. What is the home? asked Somel a little wistfully. Zava begged, Tell me first, do no women work, really? Why, yes, Terry admitted. Some have to, of, of a poor sort. About how many in your country? Oh, about seven or eight million, said Jeff, as mischievous as ever. So on the one hand, we have the lovely description of femininity being developed to please men and not to do anything else at all, which I thought was great. And then we have that they're all crazy cat ladies. That kind of surprised me. But they aren't. They aren't actually crazy cat ladies. It's that they have bred these cats for mousing, for hunting, and not for hunting birds, which I thought was fascinating. And what an interesting idea. And they were so kind of befuddled about why would you spend all this time and resources on dogs that don't do anything for you. Of course, I'm thinking there are hunting dogs and sheep herding dogs and things like that. But they were they were a little baffled by this. And of course, Van and Terry and Jeff didn't do a whole good job of defending that at all. I did wonder about that comment from Terry that nobody wanted the female dogs, that when they're breeding dogs, it's the males that are important. Is that still is that still the way things are looked upon in the dog breeding world? I don't know. I'm very curious to find out. This certainly would have been before the time when we knew that it was the men's side of the equation that determined gender. I don't know how this all plays out. But and I and I've been trying to figure this out talking to different people I know, not who are dog breeders, but who are well into the dog world, and they're kind of baffled by the whole thing, too. So I'm not sure what that's about. I'm hoping that things have changed. Please, that would be nice. And then we get to the women being inconveniently reasonable, <laughs> which I I loved as a description. Oh, yes. And the end of the chapter. Did you find it as interesting as I did with the places that Gilman placed her emphasis. Because I know friends and I have had this kind of conversation, and I don't know if you see this happen around you, but a lot of my friends who were older than me, are older than me, 
around the time they hit their 40s, they started to comment on the fact that they were getting busier and doing more things, whether it was learning to spin or learning to knit or sewing or uh, making things or volunteering or whatever. They were doing more and more, and their husbands were doing less and less. Their husbands had gotten to a position in their career where they were happy, and the women were still in motion, kind of perpetual motion machines. And this this was not the case with my grandfather. My grandfather was always perpetually in motion, <laughs> constantly. We used to say if we could just bottle whatever his energy source was, we would make a fortune selling that. But the the women just kept going, and men kind of started to slow down. And so when I hit this part in the book of the well, you know, if there was no competition, no no stimulus to industry, no reason to keep working, no one would work. And, the, you know, the next line, you mean mothers wouldn't work for their children? You mean they wouldn't take care of the kids? Who'd cook dinner? How would you eat? Where would the food come from? I guess to me, there's just always been this assumption that I will work until the day I drop. <laughs> because, partly because being a teacher for not a, a terribly, terribly long time, there is no retirement, really, to speak of yet. So that's just not going to happen. But also because I get bored so easily if I'm not learning new things and doing new things. And and since I've been lucky enough to make part of my, my work life finding things out to share with you or finding things out to share with students or researching things to use in curriculum and and find a new way to explain it to students. Since that's my work, that's something that I can do forever. I can do until the day I can no longer function. (laughs) And yeah, it just, the idea that I wouldn't work if given an opportunity just boggles my mind. So parthenogenesis and breeding programs start with parthenogenesis. If you go back and you look at Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park kind of used, the original Jurassic Park, kind of used this idea that certain animals are able to reproduce asexually. And there are others that are able to change their gender depending on how many of one gender there are. And if they're going to imbalance themselves out of existence, then they can change gender, which I find fascinating. For us to believe that Herland could exist, we have to accept this idea that women spontaneously began parthenogenitating. (laughs) Suddenly, parthenogenesis happened. And that's a big pill to swallow for me. And I think that this moment is the moment, the whole reason why this book showed up in my science fiction literature class, because this puts it into a different arena of literature. It's no longer just fiction, and it's no longer just satire. I mean, now she's she's drawing on science, and she's been drawing on science all the way along. You know, she has Van and Terry and Jeff all talking science all the time, but now we have a big, a big one. This touches on the cat thing, because the parthenogenesis is going to naturally breed certain genomic 
strains in these women, certain traits are going to be reproduced over time. And the only way you're going to have anything different happen is by mutation, because there are no men to add new elements into the mix, so to speak. And that means that you get a kind of a de facto breeding program happening in her land. Well, they have a very definite cat breeding program. And one must assume that there were decisions made about which traits, collective decisions made about which traits were desirable and which traits were not. And the ones that were not, those cats were kept away from male cats, so they couldn't reproduce. And the ones that had traits that you wanted to continue, then you let them reproduce and and let that go. You may recall that this was kind of a conversation in the first third, the first half of the 20th century. Some pretty not very nice people started talking about stuff like this. And we will talk about it more and we will talk about it more specifically as we get into it further. But this is the first hint that you get of this kind of breeding operation, that part of why Herland is uh, so peaceful is because it's so homogenous. You also and I look absolutely 100% at the time that this was written for this purpose, you also get that these women are Aryan. They would have, I'm sure, made Hitler very happy. Does that make Charlotte Perkins Gilman a Nazi? No. The fact that she doesn't have any women of color in the book, does that mean she's racist? We have no way of knowing, because that simply was not part of the conversation back then. And again, it's one of those places where you look at an author and go, wow, I really, I really wish you could have figured this one out and just been better than your era. But, but I guess not. However, one thing that I am fairly certain about is if what we're learning by hearing Van and Terry and Jeff's comments and responses back to the women of Herland. If what we're learning is the difficulties that women in our country faced, in well, in the Western world faced at the time, you can be pretty darn sure that as hard as it was for the white women, it was way harder for African-American women, Latin American women, Asian women, that no matter what, it was going to be harder. And that should be something that gives us pause. Because already you're starting to hear some things about the the way that Jeff and Van and especially Terry behave and expect the women to behave that you, you can already see that there's a um, they're used to there being a kind of subservient side to the women and they're thrown by having the women be in so much control of the situation. So again, if white women were that subservient, then it was only going to be worse for women of color. It all makes me very glad that we live when we live, because, yikes. So, it being the holiday season, I am going to stop here, and you'll be able to hear Chapter 6 next week. Thanks so much for listening. Take care. If you have any comments to leave, please call 206-350-1642, and I'll talk to you soon. Like Craftlet? Leave a review for us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or subscribe at Subbable. If one audiobook with benefits a week isn't enough for you, you can also sign up for a premium membership. There is a streaming option 
that sends the premium audio through your smartphone or tablet, or there's a downloading option where you can download the files into your computer's hot little hands. Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.